fortunately, in the last two years that we've been doing this program, we've been working kind of in a holistic model with endometriosis for about 10 years now. I'm really seeing more and more 16, 17, 18 year old girls coming into my clinic with their moms and their moms are often like, oh yeah, you know, I have this or aunt so-and-so has this or my mother probably had it or I think I had it, but I was undiagnosed. There's a, definitely an improvement in awareness in the last five years and we are seeing younger and younger patients. So I think that's a really important thing because earlier treatment saves women years of symptoms, but it also is fertility preserving, which is really important. Welcome to the Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You're about to hear from Dr. Jessica Drummond, who is a physical therapist who incorporates so much more than physical therapy into her clinical practice. Today, she's going to talk about endometriosis and pelvic pain, and we're going to dive deep into some concepts you may not have even thought would relate, like the importance of improving vagal tone, targeted supplements, nutrition, and detoxing the body-supporting lymph. So let's get into the episode. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Longevity Blueprint Podcast. Today I have Dr. Jessica Drummond on as my guest, who is the CEO of the Integrative Women's Health Institute and author of Outsmart Endometriosis. She holds licenses in physical therapy and clinical nutrition and is a board-certified health coach. She has 20 years of experience working with women with chronic pelvic pain, facilitating educational programs for women's health professionals in more than 60 countries globally and leads virtual wellness programs for people with endometriosis. Dr. Drummond lives and works with her husband and daughters between Houston, Texas and Fairfield, Connecticut. So thank you for being on the show, Dr. Drummond. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, I've been excited to talk to you, as I mentioned before we started recording, because I have had stage four endometriosis myself and struggled with terrible, painful cycles for years. Um, I have no pain with my cycles now, which is amazing. And it's reflecting back. I'm like, man, is this what the majority of women uh, experience? No pain with their cycles? Like I lost 20, 30 years of my life, (laughs) not 30, but 20 years of my life with pain. So Um, I'm excited to share what you have with the listeners because you're an expert in this area. So let's start with just telling us how your career progressed towards working with people with pelvic pain and endometriosis. Sure. So I graduated from physical therapy school back in 1999 and I was an athlete. I was a kid who liked science. So it was sort of like the natural progression was to go into something healthcare related. And so I went into physical therapy expecting that I would focus my career in orthopedics and sports medicine. But once I started practicing pretty quickly, like within the first three years, I began to specialize my practice in women's health, which, um, you know, in, in from a physical therapy standpoint, it's just specialized orthopedics, really. Um, you know, I would work with women who had had breast cancer surgery and had shoulder issues or pregnancy-related back pain. Or, you know, if I kind of carry around my trusty pelvis, <laughs> if you, if, you know, if these are your hip bones and here's your spine and, and tailbone, you know, the floor of the pelvis, which is, you know, we're talking about bladder and bowel and bladder and uh, sexual health, vaginal health, that all revolve, it's all supported by muscles and joints and nerves and circulation. And so 
um, I began to specialize in, in that kind of general perspective on using my orthopedic background to address concerns that are most commonly in women, you know, endometriosis is primarily in women, but can be in transgender men, of course. And, um, and so over the years, um, the most challenging population of patients that I would work with were women who had chronic pelvic pain conditions, mm -hmm. things like endometriosis, interstitial cystitis, painful bladder syndrome, vulvodynia, vulvar and sexual pain, and, and things like, you know, ovarian pain, PCOS, things like that. And sometimes more than one of these, you know, as, as you sure. know, having experienced this yourself, um, often these various kinds of pelvic and sexual pain present together. And so when I first started working in this area and probably for the first five years of my practice, it was very difficult to get any kind of diagnosis. The surgeries were terrible, actually first 10 years, really. Um, the surgeries that my patients had access to, you know, they would come and having, I've had 17 surgeries, I've had ah. 16, you know. And because they're, you know, the skill, the kind of surgery they were having, the people weren't really trained in, in the right kinds of surgery. Also, we didn't have a lot of useful tools. The medications didn't work that well. They didn't work consistently. Uh, they had a lot of side effects. It's still really the same thing now. The delay to diagnosis was an average of 15 years, which... Wow. It's still bad. It's an average of six to 12 years, but um, it's improving at least, which is, I suppose, something to be said for that. So I realized, you know, I realized that the tools that I had in physical therapy were helpful, but would often leave my clients sort of plateaued. Um, and that was also related to our skill set generally in physical therapy, too. A lot of people with endometriosis have occult hernias, have nerve issues, you know, things that we weren't really looking for in 2004, you know. Um, so the, all, the whole field has progressed. But the thing that I think brought me specifically uh, full circle in this work and, and continues to expand is starting to bring a holistic perspective and include... Uh, nutrition from a functional medicine perspective after the birth of my first daughter I had a kind of a hormonal crash related to a viral reactivation and a lot of fatigue anxiety um, very vague symptoms just like people with you know these chronic pain invisible illnesses experience for a long time and the tool that was most helpful to me personally and was really helpful to my hormonal health including uh, a secondary infertility struggle was nutrition so I went back to school and got a doctorate in nutrition and began to integrate the physical medicine mindset with and, and more kind of Western mindset with a more integrative and expansive holistic mindset, thinking about stressors and childhood trauma and birth trauma and all of that kind of bringing a wider perspective on dealing with pain in general, but specifically pelvic and sexual pain, since that's really was my clinical area. So let's specifically get into endometriosis and maybe even pelvic pain. Can you speak to how common those are? 
Yeah, pelvic pain is extremely common. You know, I think something like 80% of women. So you said earlier, like most women feel great during their periods. That's not exactly true. <laughs> you know, between period pain, vaginal pain, uh, sexual pain, bladder pain, uh, if we add all of those things up, postpartum sexual pain, it's very, very common to at some point in your childbearing years have some sort of pelvic pain, some somewhere in the 80% and up. Wow. Um, endometriosis is also very common, not nearly that common. It's 10% of women have endometriosis, which is still a lot. You know, that's mm -hmm. two girls out of every class of 20 teenagers, you know, um, which is a lot. And it's not screened for yet by our school nurses, although our organization does support an, uh, another organization called Endo What that's doing a really good job of trying to educate school nurses around the world to start screening for this because endometriosis is the number one reason that middle school and high school girls miss school. Um, wow. So it's actually quite common, but it's not very well managed. So what are symptoms specifically of endometriosis? So to viewers who maybe have never heard this term before, we've alluded to painful cycles. What are other symptoms of endometriosis? So painful cycles are key, but always cyclical, especially in teenagers, because usually the symptoms begin Endometriosis is an underpinning of a genetic disease. So even studies done in female embryos show about 9% have endometriosis. So it's a, there's a genetic wow. disease that's sort of activated at puberty and by inflammation and, you know, things like that. So a normal timeline or a common timeline is that a girl, you know, between like eight and 12 will start experiencing like chronic stomach aches, bloating, constipation, uh, IBS, things like that. All the GI workup is done. They don't really find anything or they do and they treat it, but it comes back, you know, that kind of a picture. Then when uh, they get their period um, or a little before or sometime in those first few years, there's debilitating sort of cramping pain, which can be pretty cyclical. It can be more random, especially at first, especially in teenagers, because of course the cycles are still pretty random. Um, some people have no symptoms at all. Endometriosis can be silent until later uh, women may struggle with infertility. So it's, it's that kind of combination of symptoms. I often see women with overlying anxiety, depression, a lot of fatigue, the side effects of some of the medications that are used to just sort of quiet the symptoms like hormonal birth control mm -hmm. or pain medications or antidepressants tend to have like fatigue, brain fog, um, anxiety, depression kinds of secondary effects for sleeping, things like that. So it, it can be any number of things in that realm. And for some people, the pain is very severe. And for some people, it's not as severe. Some people, it's only with sex. Some people, it's only at the beginning of the period. Some people, it's bowel movements. Some people, it's more all the time or can be triggered by anything. And then for some women, the symptoms are much more mild. The, the challenging thing about endometriosis is that we don't have an easy 
diagnostic tool. So you have to have a laparoscopic surgery mm -hmm. to have it ruled in or ruled out. And, you know, it's not like a simple blood test. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately that leaves kind of the, the combination of what various symptoms can present also could look like a lot of other things, digestive sure. issues, you know, psychosocial issues and so forth. But it tends to be some combination of those symptoms. And it's not indicative, like you said, you have stage had stage four endo, which is pretty, mm -hmm. which is the severest form. You could have very severe symptoms and only have only have stage one mm -hmm. endo. Right. You may not have symptoms at all or very few and not have stage three or four. So mm -hmm. it's not indicative of the severity of the d disease, the presentation either, which is Confusing. Frustrating and confusing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so frustrating. You, yeah. So you, you mentioned, you, correct me if I'm wrong, you work with or you, maybe this is your organization that's supporting, uh, advocating for nurses to, are you saying screen for these symptoms so that this can yeah. be detected at an earlier. earlier age so the delay to diagnosis isn't as long? Correct. So it's not my organization. Uh, the organization is called Endo What. Uh, they have also produced a film, a movie, explaining more about what Endo is. And now they have what's called the School Nurse, nurse Initiative, which educates school nurses to, yes, be the kind of eyes and ears on the ground of when this is most commonly beginning to present rather than waiting till women mm -hmm. are in there. You know, as you said, like it can take 20 years of chronic pain before someone's like, oh, maybe you have endo. Right. So uh, that organization, our, my company, the Integrative Women's Health Institute, you know, does some funding with them. But that organization runs that initiative. And I strongly advocate for that because I think, you know, fortunately, in the last mm, two years that we've been doing this program, we've been working kind of in a holistic model with endometriosis for about 10 years now. In the last two years, I'm really seeing more and more 16, 17, 18-year-old girls coming into my clinic, you know, with their moms and their moms are often like, oh, yeah, you know, I have this or aunt so-and-so has this or my mother probably had it or I think I had it, but I was undiagnosed. There's a definitely an improvement improvement in awareness in the last Good. five years um, and we are seeing younger and younger patients so I think that's a really important thing because earlier treatment saves women years of symptoms but it also is fertility preserving which is really important Absolutely. And that's what I struggled with infertility and which is partially, I had a good suspicion that I had endometriosis based on the severity of my symptoms, but that's when I really did need to get my scope and, and diagnosis. So let's, let's talk about conventional, the conventional approach to treating endometriosis in a little more detail. And then I want to talk about natural therapies for endometriosis. So what are the conventional uh, treatments? And I guess let's back up even further. Let's talk more about the laparoscopy. And exactly what that is, um, what that procedure is to determine if a patient has endometriosis and then talk about some conventional treatment options. Right. So laparoscopy is a kind of robot driven camera surgery where the excision, so excision means like cutting out of the lesion sort of at the root. So the old, the other version of endosurgery is called ablation, where there's like a laser that just burns off the top. If you imagine a lesion 
on a, you know, an organ system or whatever. And then there are some roots to it, sort of like a cancerous tumor. Endo is not cancer, although it does predispose to some cancers. Um, but imagine if you have a tumor growing into something, you would want to ultimately what's called excise out that whole lesion ablation when my patients were having 16 17 surgeries you would go in it's the good thing about laparoscopic surgery is it's smaller incisions so there's a camera in internally and then the tool that either burns off the lesion at the top or cuts it out exercising mm -hmm. that's a very oversimplified explanation but i'm not a surgeon so sure. hopefully that will do um but you know, the, like one of the, the surgeons I know quite well who does really skilled excision surgery, he used to be a military helicopter pilot. So like, it's literally like you're kind of driving these various um, mm -hmm. arms, which yeah. is a combination of a camera and a tool to excise. Yeah. So you have to drive the camera so that you can see what you're looking at on a screen through some smaller incisions rather than just cutting the person's entire abdomen open which is a much easier recovery than an open yes. surgery. Yep. Um, but there has to be some sort of blind skill, which is why that sort of history of helicopter <laughs> role is a benefit. Um, Not sure many surgeons have that uh, experience, but <laughs> that's right. But I think it's a useful visual of like, yeah. they have to be kind of driving a number of instruments and then using a screen to be able to see it. So that's a laparoscopic both diagnosis and surgical intervention to remove so, essentially the abnormal growth right so endometriosis is this abnormal growth of tissue it's inflammatory that can hinder implantation of an embryo right causing the infertility that can cause pain so those lesions need to be removed we need to get at the root cause as far as why the patient had the endometriosis so it doesn't come back but yes, removing the lesions is key. And I mentioned in my book, Your Longevity Blueprint, I mentioned a patient who had had the surgery you mentioned that was more of the uh, ablative therapy where the mm. lesions were burnt off. And guess what? A few years later, she had it again. And again, many of my patients, I, yeah. <laughs> I've had patients come to me say, I've had the surgery 11 times and I'm thinking, surely, um, <laughs> surely we've technology has progressed to the point where we don't need to keep doing the same surgery that's not working. But sadly, the recurrence rate with endometriosis is very high with those when you only have those sort of surgeries. And so I knew in my journey, I did not want that surgery. <laughs> I wanted the excision surgery, however we call it, where they literally will cut out the entire lesions um, and the surgeon that I sought out in another state also had a non-scarring technique they used a non-scarring solution because many patients end up with more scar tissue after the surgeries that lead to more pain and I knew that I didn't want that so I feel very fortunate for knowing what I didn't want <laughs> yeah. I had to seek out someone outside my state to do the surgery that I that I needed to have um, so surgery is one option <laughs> Um, before before surgery, uh, many patients are, as you mentioned previously, recommended birth control also, right? Which we know can cause more harm than good. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So, so finding, I think there's a couple key points I just want to highlight real quick about yeah. the surgical. Yeah. Finding a surgeon who's really skilled at this makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Like that's probably one of the most important things you can do. The challenge of that 
is that it's usually quite expensive. It's not available everywhere. Yep. Many of these surgeons are more of a cash-based practice um, because unfortunately the reimbursement is not good. Uh, they, most of the surgeons who are working on this are trying to improve that through ACOG and, and everything in the US. And it depends on which country you live in, Sure. the resources, but there are resources. You can certainly come you know, f- seek me out on Instagram and we can help you find all those resources. And I'm sure you have some as well, but finding the right person who's very skilled with that surgery makes a big difference to the outcome because yes, how skilled they are with the surgery, the surgical technique they use, the fact that they consider more complexities like the post-op adhesions and scarring, bowel function, you know, all of that matters because where endometriosis grows, it's not just a sexual disease, right? We think of this as like a women's sexual disease. No, endometriosis is a lesion of tissue and there are various kinds that can grow anywhere. Women have, there are case studies published of people having endometriosis in their nose, knee, wow, acrum, you know, it's not just on the uterus. It's often or the bladder on the bowel. Or the bowel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's often on the bladder, bowel, or around the uterus by definition it's external to the uterus so it's not really in the uterus but can be on the ovary can be on the fallopian tube adenomyosis which is kind of a sister condition is having a similar kinds of lesions on the on the muscle of the uterus so bottom line you need to find you know a skilled surgeon to at least consult with understand the diagnosis now absolutely surrounding that the conventional therapies up to this point have been basically two things, pain medicine, (laughs) pain management, which is a problem because, you know, we have a huge opioid addiction issue in the U S and up until very recently, that was one of the number one tools. It's just like mask the pain. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, now it's much less so because opioids are so much more heavily regulated, but for, you know, the first 17 years of my practice, that was really common. And so you have a lot of opioid addiction. Second would be more of like pain neuromodulators. So things like gabapentin, Mm -hmm. um, Lyrica, you know, these have some usefulness and validity. Uh, there are some good studies. They do sort of downregulate the nervous system. There is some kind of kind of uh, brain neurotransmitter support. If you kind of just again take a big giant step back and look at the data and look at it in practice. You know, I've heard it summarized as 30% of the patients, 30% of the time feel some kind of benefit with this. And I think that's probably pretty reasonable given my clinical experience. And sometimes it can be really helpful to, to down-regulating the nervous system post, uh, preoperatively and in that additional, in the original, uh, initial post-op timeframe because surgery is by definition going to amp up the nervous system. So if we can keep that as chilled as possible and some of those tools are helpful, that's valuable. The other perspective was like suppress hormones. This is an estrogen driven disease and we just have to turn off the estrogen. Well, there's a lot of problems with that. It's not always estrogen driven. Uh, Newer studies uh, that have come out in 2018 look have seen through histology upregulation of progesterone receptors on endometriosis upregulation of both estrogen and progesterone receptors on endolesions 
no upregulation of either receptor on the lesion. And in the same woman, you could have upregulated uh, estrogen, upregulated progesterone, both, neither on a variety of the different lesions she might present with. So it's not as cut and dry to just suppress estrogen, which is what a lot of the drugs do, including hormonal birth control, basically is a, a hormonal suppressant, um, which again is why sometimes it's like, oh, it's a miracle. My symptoms are gone when I'm on her hormonal birth control. And other women are like, hmm feels the same, maybe worse on this. So there's not a straightforward answer to kind of the underlying causes and it does vary. So the medications are not a home run at all. So from a nutritional kind of integrative standpoint, ideally we see our clients in a four month program and ideally about three months prior to surgery if they're going to have surgery not everyone needs surgery and not everyone wants to have surgery either way and that's totally fine and then you know if they have surgery about a month post-op and then sometimes we repeat that program a couple times depending on various things it can take a while to completely root cause recover and sometimes women then want to try to get pregnant or want us to support them through their pregnancy so the outcome varies but let's assume kind of that initial four months of optimizing their system so that they can either have surgery or they don't need surgery sure. or they choose not to have surgery so the systems approach that we take optimizes kind of nervous system calming first because the most the mo the more we can kind of down regulate the nervous system with vagus nerve toning, heart rate variability optimization, breath work, working with pelvic floor physical therapists to kind of, you know, calm and move the pelvic floor so people aren't walking around in like a lot of muscle tension, lymph flow, you know, circulatory system optimization. That then helps the next layer, which is digestive system. Digest, so many women have SIBO and SIFO or like, bloating, overgrowth of bacteria, constipation, diarrhea, both. So getting the digestive function optimized, eating a very anti-inflammatory food plan, adding nutrient-dense vegetables and easier to digest foods, blended soups, foods high in culinary herbs and spices like oregano and turmeric. Turmeric has like about nine different mechanisms that it helps endometriosis. Optimizing digestive function, chewing, stomach acid, digestive enzymes. And then the immune system is about 80% tied up in the digestive system. So the more we optimize digestion, the more we can then optimize immune function. And then we can more specifically support that with mineral absorption and, you know, calming things like histamine excessive responses. Some people with endo also have like hives issues or bladder pain that can or skin issues that can be related to more of a histamine sensitivity. And then excretion, detoxification. So hopefully we're first getting someone pooping really well and easily and normally. Motility can be a big issue in endo because a lot of times the lesions are right growing on the intestines and or there's some scarring or adhesions related to that. So gut motility can slow down. So we want to get that optimized and then also supporting the liver with things like broccoli and other cruciferous vegetables, lots of leafy greens, 
So we have a lot of tools between nervous system kind of toning and strengthening, circadian rhythm alignment to help with that anxiety and fatigue, movement practices, and then nutrition and some targeted supplementation really puts the body in a healthier foundation so that whether or not someone chooses to have surgery, when they come out of surgery, they're in better shape and then they're prepared to just live their life, get pregnant, fertility improves that first year post-operatively, probably because of some immune factors. We can enhance those nutritionally. And so that's really the approach that we've developed over the last decade or so. I love that. I'm taking notes here because I want to come back to some of those points. So can you give the audience, the listeners, a few strategies for improving bagel tone? So what yes. are some of your top favorites? Cold water swimming is great if you live near like a, I live on the, the sound. This is like, uh, I live in Connecticut on the coast. So it's pretty cold in the wet, that water most of the time. So, but you so can when just you do say it swimming, shower. so not yeah. just like a dip, you're saying swimming? Well, <laughs> you like saying? five, a cold water immersion is okay. all that really <laughs> takes to optimize the, the vagus nerve. Five minutes a day. So if you could take a five minute cold shower, that works. But you could okay. also jump in your local lake or ocean if it's pretty cold. You know, and it doesn't have to be a long swim, but a minute to five minutes is helpful. Cold water immersion. I like loud singing works pretty well. The vagus nerve runs right by the throat. So anything that will like vibrate the throat will work. So you can use loud singing. You can use like chanting if you're into certain kinds of yoga or meditation. Um, my slow breathing also works. Diaphragmatic breathing or just paced breathing, which is just like four breaths in, four breaths out, that helps. Intense gargling will do the same thing because of the location of the vagus nerve. Sure, those are great. And yeah. again, just so the listeners understand how important this is, we want to calm the nervous system down also because stress is a big hormone hijacker and hormones aren't bad. I, I, I do find in many of my patients, I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned some studies have shown that progest or that endometriosis could be progesterone driven, mm -hmm. but I will say in most of my cases, my patients with endometriosis are very estrogen dominant. They are very low on progesterone and stress. I say this all the time. Stress will rob you of progesterone, <laughs> soothing, calming hormone. That's great for calming cramps and helping, usually helping pelvic pain, minimizing a lot of those nasty symptoms. So in a way, singing loudly and doing these cold baths could improve your hormone status to minimize the painful cycles. I just want to try to kind of tie that together also. Of course, you want your body to be in a more relaxed state to relax the pelvic floor <laughs> also, <laughs> I'm sure. But I just wanted to make that connection so the listeners know why Why again am I singing loudly or what's the point of me doing these things? <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Calm nervous system is key to hormonal balance mm -hmm. because one, you can't absorb fats, which build all hormones unless you have a calm environment for optimal digestion. Good tip. But also, if your cortisol levels are imbalanced, which is why stress is such a huge factor, then that, as you said, sort of robs you of your progesterone. And, and, and actually, any hormones can be able to, any reproductive hormones can yeah. be thrown out of balance Even by that. Thyroid, and thyroid. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so that stress balance is probably one of the most important things we can do, which is why we've just recently started including heart rate variability tracking, because that's a very objective measure of stress that you can use. There's so many, like, you know, you can using a, a watch passively track that and start to just notice, huh? When I eat chocolate ice cream, my HRV goes up. Or when I'm with my boss, my <laughs> HRV not goes up, but yeah, yeah. goes awry. My stress right. goes awry. Our heart rate variability should increase. But like the way it's tracked in the app, you'll see a calmer, you know, huh, was I after that three, five minute cold shower, was it more in the calm? And I think the more we can start to use things that are passive tracking, it's very difficult from a behavioral standpoint for people to actively track things like stress, but to start passively tracking an objective measure of stress has is something we started to look at more seriously because I think it's so valuable to see how impactful stress really is. I love that. I love that you start your all your clients with that as number one. You may have heard me mention the nutrient DIM on several episodes, and I want to take a moment to describe exactly what that is. When I was in graduate school, my doctorate focused on estrogen metabolism. Now, you're probably wondering what that even means and why it matters to your health. Well, research has shown that our risks for fibroids, cysts, and breast, ovarian, uterine, prostate, and colon cancer can all be linked back to estrogen, but it's not the levels of estrogens that can increase our risk. Instead, it's the way our bodies handle that estrogen that matters. We can run individual lab tests for this, which I often recommend to my patients. That's called estrogen metabolism testing, which has to be done in the urine. Even without the test, however, it is safe to take a supplement and extract of cruciferous vegetables to improve your estrogen metabolism. That's basically like taking in six pounds of those veggies per day in a capsule form without the gas. That supplement is called DIM, D-I-M. You can also use methylated B vitamins as well as specific targeted antioxidants like resveratrol to help improve your estrogen metabolism and help protect you from that cancer risk. Of course, also make sure you have your practitioner run a comprehensive genetic analysis to see from another perspective if you are at increased risk and help you learn what you can do to lower that. If you're interested in learning more about DIM, read chapter six of my book, Your Longevity Blueprint, and check out our product info sheet at yourlongevityblueprint.com forward slash product forward slash DIM. To get 10% off DIM alone or 15% off our estrogen detox bundle with DIM, methylated B vitamins, and antioxidant support. Just use the code estrogen detox when checking out at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now let's get back to the show. Let's talk about what you consider an anti-inflammatory diet. So this was huge for me also. So let's speak to that a little bit. So there's no kind of one size fits all endo diet because it depends on your genetics and a number of other factors. We do two tests really commonly. We look at GI, uh, the gut microbiome, and we look at absorption of nutrients. And so there are genetic factors which make sometime or and factors related to those two lab tests that make um, certain anti-inflammatory diets better than others for different people. But the core of it is mostly plant-based foods and then things that are less inflammatory, we either take out or minimize depending on the circumstance, sugar, gluten, dairy, Mm -hmm. soy, 
and alcohol usually are the kind of main ones that would cover most people. Some people need a quite plant-based diet. That's less common in my experience. More common would be in the direction of a more paleo, occasionally ketogenic diet. Occasional intermittent fasting can be beneficial or eating in that kind of making sure there's a 12-hour window at night of not eating with sometimes pumping that up to 16-hour window. So basically you're eating between 11 and 7 um, because that's so supportive to the immune system. Um, but, you know, animal-based proteins tend, I find that my patients do better who can tolerate some animal proteins fish, organic poultry, grass-fed beef, um, things like that. It doesn't have to be every day. It doesn't have to be every meal. But because, you know, we need so much protein to heal in this condition, um, I just find that it works better than going completely plant-based, but you still want to be plant dominant, you know, and, and not a lot of raw vegetables at first because the digestive function is usually off. So blended soups, you know, smoothies can be really helpful, things like that. We, we have to be mindful of making things easier to digest. Sure. I had been gluten-free, I don't know how many years, five years, whatnot, uh, before I struggled with infertility. And I was actually very pleased that my surgeon recommended an anti-inflammatory diet. And she said, yeah. you need to be dairy-free. And I said, well, but dairy didn't show up on my food sensitivity test. It had years prior, and I wasn't consuming that much of it anyways. But I had, after my surgery, I still wasn't getting pregnant. <laughs> I needed to go 100% dairy-free. And six months later... I was able to get pregnant. So I think going dairy-free was a huge part of my journey also. Mm -hmm. And just so the audience makes the connection, dairy many times will feed estrogen dominance, right? Because we're eating cows that are injected with, hopefully you're eating organic dairy if you're eating any, but you're consuming the milk from the cow that's been injected with hormones, potentially growth hormones, right? And estrogen is a proliferative hormone. It will cause growth of tissue, right? That it causes your uterine lining to thicken. That's why you have a period. <laughs> so yes. we do we do want to minimize foods that are going to feed estrogen, like the soy that you mentioned and the dairy, whatnot. So I I, I absolutely can appreciate that. You alluded to some targeted nutritional supplements. So maybe mention a few of your favorites that you use in these cases. You mentioned turmeric actually already. Yeah, turmeric is a great one, probably the most diverse research on that. So I like that in many cases. Um, and if someone can't tolerate super high doses of turmeric, you know, coconut milk curries are great. Golden milk uh, lattes are great. Things like, like that. How high of a dose do you use? What are you recommending? <laughs> um, you can use, you know, for studied doses up to 2000 milligrams for, you know, things yeah. like depression. Because uh, sure. if someone has a, you know, imbalances in the bowel, um, you know, I think 500 to 2000 milligrams sure. is reasonable in this population when there's a lot of inflammation, yep. then I really like fish oil. So yeah. for period pain, they did a horrible study that was just like, I'm like, could you have controlled this any worse? But <laughs> without even checking on anything, they gave all these women a thousand milligrams of fish oil a day. And the period pain was dramatically improved for any reason. There was no underlying diagnosis. There was no looking at, is someone, you know, omega-3 deficient? <laughs> they just gave everybody 1,000 milligrams of fish oil, and it was helpful. So usually I go a little higher in this population, more like 
3000 milligrams a day, maybe even a little bit more short term um, and being a little bit mindful of when the surgery is. Although I talked to one of the researchers who's done some of the most official omega-3 fatty acid research, even in brain injury in the military. And he was not concerned at all it being like a bleeding risk. So Mm. I'm much less concerned about that than I used to be. Mm. Um, But I am mindful of that pre-op and post-op that we just want to make sure we don't encourage excessive bleeding. Sure. Um, I will say I do some mm -hmm. procedures in my office and Absolutely. My patients on high dose fish oil bleed more. Uh, They absolutely do. We have to hold pressure. (laughs) Yeah. So many times, and it could vary based on the patient and their genes too. Like, uh, so, but I do usually recommend patients stop just in case they're going to be more of a bleeder that they stop ahead of time. But fish oil blocks the coxamox enzymes like ibuprofen would, right? So instead of taking ibuprofen, which I took for years and years and years, for my endometriosis pain that I didn't know was endometriosis <laughs> at the time, destroying my gut, which then led to SIBO and fructose intolerance and likely all my food sensitivities and whatnot. Instead of taking ibuprofen, you could take fish oil and turmeric. But yeah. I didn't know that <laughs> you know, yeah. as, a, as, a, as a teenager. I didn't know yeah. that. I didn't have those tools. So if you're listening and you're a mother and your daughter has painful cycles, these are great tips. Turmeric and fish oil are a, a great place to start along with the diet changes and the stress reduction. <laughs> yeah, but I, those are probably my two most kind of direct supplements. I also really like digestive enzymes and sometimes betaine HDL. Like we have to help the digestive system do its job. Sure. And then sometimes specific probiotics and or antimicrobials, depending on what we see and a little bit more granular data, but that I would do more in a more personalized way. But I think, as you said, turmeric and fish oil, you really can't go wrong. And if you don't want to take them as supplements, eat more curry, golden milk latte, eat 12 to 16 ounces of quality fish. You know, we can get this in food too. Yeah, that's great. What about DIM? Do you use DIM Mm -hmm. in your patient population? I do dim broccoli extracts, uh, sulforaphane, things like that. Uh, yeah, I think liver support is really valuable. Um, and even things like, you know, castor oil packs, dry brushing, you know, get the whole lymph and detoxification system, breath work, you know, it doesn't have to be all about the liver, but absolutely. And I think being mindful of, environmental estrogens because I had one patient, we could not get rid of her period pain. She was living in the Middle East and I was like, you know, it's really hot there. Do you ever wear uh, plastic flip-flops because she had her take changed all her makeup mm-hmm. stopped drinking out of plastic water bottles wasn't storing food in plastic but sure enough until she stopped wearing hot plastic flip-flops every day we couldn't get her estrogen controlled so wow. that's another thing to think about not just supporting yeah. the liver but lowering the toxic load wow who would have who would have thought I know. you did thankfully <laughs> so yeah all those those last tips support detox. So even DIM will help clear out excess estrogen, which is wonderful. Can you speak to castor oil packs? I haven't had anyone on the podcast yet mention how to use those. Can you? So the naturopath that we work with in our clinic does that more than me, but basically you just take castor oil and you, you put it on a warm flannel cloth and you can put it on the abdomen. Um, if you're having trouble kind of moving the lymph in your neck, for some reason, you can even gently put it over the neck. Interesting in the last few weeks, we've had a number of patients who have both tight pelvic floor and kind of tight 
throat issues. Like they get scratchy throat. They can't talk for too long, things like that. They have kind of chronic and they feel like they can't swallow pills because their throat feels tense. There's some kind of interesting connection between the throat and the pelvic floor that I don't know if we have any research on, but just kind of clinically, we've started to notice that more and more. And so uh, she, one of the things she recommended that I really think is a great idea is kind of taking that castor oil support detox, which at worst, it just feels good, right? Sure. You put a warm pack on your abdomen, have some castor oil, leave it on there for, you know, 15, 20 minutes and it's supportive of lymph flow. Um, physical therapists also do manual lymph massage. You can use dry brushing, but I think we underestimate the support of the circulatory and lymph systems to help with detox, yeah. you know, when we're supporting all the detox organs. Great, great tips. I know we've focused a lot on endometriosis, but since you are a physical therapist, I do want to come back to pelvic pain uh, real quick. And obviously endometriosis can be a cause of pelvic pain. Uh, you mentioned trauma, like childhood trauma can, can lead to, to pelvic pain. So in the few minutes we have left here, do you want to talk just a little bit about other contributors to pelvic pain, pelvic pain that you have found and then some strategies to help patients recover from those? Yeah, I mean, I think acute childhood, um, what are called adverse childhood events, which are essentially traumas in childhood, but can also be in the teen years, could also be, you know, if we want to get a little esoteric, when your mother was pregnant with you, if there was some kind of trauma going on there, sure. um, child and trauma, childhood trauma, teen trauma, birth trauma, yep. anytime you're in more of a vulnerable situation and there's a traumatic experience, there definitely is a kind of lowering the resilience of our stress buffering system. And that can be hard to completely turn around. So trauma-informed psychotherapy, trauma-informed physical therapy, being just gentle with your own stress responses, knowing that you're going to need more recovery, knowing that, uh, you know, you want to unwind that trauma as much as you can, but you also have to really be gentle with yourself because it's a long-term effect to having traumas during any of those vulnerable lifetimes that shifts the ability of the body's system to buffer any subsequent tra traumas. Hmm. So I think it's just something that is underappreciated. And I think, you know, the system itself breeds trauma around this specific disease process. You know, anything pelvic pain related can take years to be diagnosed, is often dismissed by doctors. Oh, you're having sexual pain, just go have a glass of wine first, you know, or like, oh, you know, it's normal during delivery, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's a lot of kind of underappreciation of how much trauma women go through and how little they really know about what's going on during a lot of these sure. situations. And instead of our system allowing the time and space and training of providers to really slow down and explain and support, there's a lot of, oh my gosh, this is an emergency. We're going to do this to you. And then like everyone leaves. You know, so, or it's like, oh, it's not that bad, or you're just, everyone has period pain, or it's normal, you know, and it can even be in families, especially around endometriosis, because there is some, you know, generation to generation, it's like, oh, yeah. every woman in this family has bad periods, welcome to the club, but... Right. 
there's a lot of trauma to not being believed and our system is is really set up that way for women in general but about five times worse for women of color mm. um so I think we just have to be really mindful that many of these situations, by the time someone uh, is addressing it appropriately, there are layers of trauma that need to be considered. And that does directly contribute to the physical pain. So managing the trauma is, all, is as important as taking turmeric. Yeah, good, good. I, I know postpartum, I had a very traumatic delivery we won't get into all of that but um, postpartum I knew primarily from a preventing urinary incontinence standpoint incontinence standpoint I wanted to see a physical therapist because I wanted to make sure I was strengthening my pelvic floor appropriately and doing the right exercises and, and whatnot right. and I and so I went to an amazing physical therapist and she taught me that I my pelvic floor was pretty tight and so mm. I really did need to just learn how to relax the pelvic floor do you when patients come to see you is that very common that these patients with this pain I mean their, their pelvic floor is just very tense and tight and you really have to work with them through multiple ways <laughs> to, to relax. Get that to yeah. 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 And the, of course the bias is strengthen, strengthen kegels, you know? Um, but even when people have prolapses or incontinence, a lot of times they're kind of gripping cause they're trying not to pee or they feel like something's falling out. Sure. So we have to retrain and, you know, until you've had a baby and sometimes even for years after or never, do we really like get educated on connecting our brain to the muscles of the pelvic floor? So a lot of this is done sort of in an involuntary protective way. So re-education of those muscles to both relax and move is really important. So if I walked around for the last eight years with my elbow bent, trying not to, you know, pee out of my biceps, right? <laughs> it would be very difficult to strengthen it from this position. You can't like just squeeze it harder. So you have to learn to lengthen and relax and have strength kind of all along the way, right? At every different angle, not just way up here. So there's there's the same thing with the pelvic floor. Can it move and can it be strong in every range? And, you know, we don't have automatic pelvic floor physical therapy postpartum like they do in many European countries. So we really need to, to self-advocate that, mm -hmm. you know, there are people that can help you. Just in the last couple of weeks, I've seen two friends who, you know, months after postpartum were like, I think there's something wrong. I don't know what's going on. And I was like, all right, you know, I'm just going to come look because everything's closed and I'll just gear up and just come to your house. And they both had pretty severe um, vaginal wall prolapses. Mm -hmm. And their doctor was just like, yeah, you're fine. Go back to sex, go back to running, go back to strength training. You know, you we don't get any good recovery for this stuff. And then it just pushes the problems down the road. So also, uh, we mentioned you need to find a great surgeon if you're exploring the possibility of having endometriosis surgery, but you also need to find a great physical therapist yeah. <laughs> to do yeah. the assessment that you're alluding to, right? Yeah. Um, great. So last few questions here. So how can women with endometriosis or other pelvic pain conditions just optimize their overall health for even for healthy sexual relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the exact same thing. Okay. support the layers of your health, digestion, stress, yeah. <laughs> stress, 
immune health. And then in relationship, the relationship itself has to be healthy, or at least working on being healthy. Um, You know, if someone's had severe sexual pain for years, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, you're fine. Like, what does that mean? Like you have to develop a a language with your partner. Very often when I was doing a lot of in-person pelvic physical therapy and have person's partner come in, we'd work on languaging and communication building and different kinds of touching and positioning because it's not all or nothing. It's not like, don't touch me for five years and then, okay, fine, let's have every kind of sex we ever thought of. There's gonna be some, uh, you know, emotional connecting that needs to happen. Sure. Now, are many of these tips that we went over in your book? <laughs> yes, and a lot more. A lot more. Yes. So tell us about your book. Yeah, so the the book is called Outsmart Endometriosis, and I'm happy to give anyone listening to this podcast a free copy. Just go to outsmartendo.com, and there's lots of tips and summary of what we talked about and even recipes to keep you dairy-free and (laughs) (laughs) gluten-free. Wonderful. Very generous offer. So thank you so much. This was very helpful. So sincerest thank you for coming on the show today and giving us so many strategies and tips for improving the quality of life in those suffering with potential endometriosis or other pelvic pain, just providing us hope that, that women can get their life back just like I did. So thank you for all you do and all the advocacy for women suffering with these conditions. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. What another wonderful guest who is truly an expert on yet another topic which I agree with her is so often overlooked. Who would have thought that singing loudly or even taking cold baths could impact our hormones and ultimately our pelvic pain for the better? So please check out Dr. Drummond's free book for even more helpful strategies and please share with those in need. The link will be in the show notes. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, not only is the course 50% off, but you also get your first consult with me for free. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I read all of the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, or how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. The podcast is produced by the team at Counterweight Creative. As always, thanks so much for listening and remember, wellness is waiting. The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.